Friday, November 18th, 2016. I'm Steve Piku. Grasshopper Mendoza. And I'm talking on the phone from the Netherlands. Jabade Sandiford. And we are adaptation strategists, an emerging field, an emerging field of practice of professionals around the world who are seeking to deal with the change that we all face in a constantly changing climate, a constantly changing world that is facing many threats and many challenges to our current lifestyles. We had a real setback recently with the election, and we've, we've already discussed a lot of what that means, but now we're kind of dealing into the social piece a little bit. But for those so, just joining us, <laughs> welcome. And, and Tom, Tom Vandervoorn is in the Netherlands, Jabati Sandiford, Grasshopper, and I are all in New Orleans, some of the lowest-lying areas in the world that are heavily populated. And we face similar issues, and we've worked together in the past, individually and as countries, dealing with the threats that flooding and storms and living in low-lying areas in a wet area can can cause. Where we're at right now, Tom, with the changes, and you know, obviously we all feel a bit pessimistic about things right now, but do you see, in your professional view, a way forward or some ideas that we should work towards to try and really, truly be adaptive? Now, first of all, climate change is a, is a given fact. So although there are uh, climate deniers everywhere to be found, even here in the Netherlands, especially members of the populist uh, movement here in the Netherlands, they also disagree with this whole phenomenon of climate change. But, you know, I think the, I think the point is, is that we, we really have to, to act now so what, what I do see in the field of climate change adaptation, which is really an uh, emerging research field, but also it's, it's a new practice as well, because we, you know, the Netherlands uh, likes to promote itself as the front runner in adaptive water management, but there are also other places in the world where they uh, make progress on this topic. What I feel is like, we all strive for the same thing to adapt to the challenges of climate change. But I think there's a really, the next step would be to exchange best practices. And that's why I'm very curious on what, what are the latest development in the US. And what Steve already mentioned is that uh, if you look at the Delta regions all over the world, they share similar challenges socially, economically, geographically, but also in terms of governance. So I think that there's a huge need to, to exchange not only scientific insights, but also from a practitioner point of view among the different communities in the world. And I think it's, it's, it's really a timely effort, I would say. And especially if you look at, the, if you look, look at Trump's agenda, it doesn't look very promising for climate, climate change adaptation scholars or practitioners. So I think we, we should go on and show the world like this is really needed. You know, we need to act and better, better to be safe than sorry, I would say. I think that's kind of the, the, the rhetoric that we've had up to this point. I mean, we can do it better safe than sorry. Learn from each other. 
I think that's not resonating. What we were talking about earlier about access, the word elite, the academic elite is being used. I can relate to that because with the new company trying to describe what we do and expressing it to others, the pitch might not be as, as good as I want it to be, but people look at me like, oh, okay, next. And, and that's kind of where we're at right now. Uh, and so having these ideals when people, Tommy mentioned it earlier, you know, even with your friends in the Netherlands, it's, it's what's happening today, what's happening tomorrow. I would like to try to go back to the social piece and the social piece is there's a lot of challenges there because there's been a lot of haves and have nots. And so then we're going to just break up everything as far as the economy and the use of technology and how we're educating and what our priorities are. I mean, this is a, the word disruption is very appropriate. Yeah, I agree. And so what, what we can observe right now is that facts don't matter anymore. So it's more like how it's been communicated, right? So it's, it's not really about content because right. people would argue like, okay, this is, those are your scientific facts. But one could argue like, okay, how did you arrive at these facts? Are they contestable? But the, the thing is right now is that if, if you interact with climate deniers, they would say like, yeah, but come on, you know, yesterday it was freezing. So you're talking about global warming. So that's, that's right the, quite the opposite. So it's more like at this point in time, facts do not matter somehow, you know? And we, it's really problematic for, for people like us, professional scholars. In the end, we would like to communicate a, a version of the truth. But you know, there are multiple truths. But the point is, we should think about a way to make it communicable. Well, go, going beyond the traditional way of communicating facts. That's really, really challenging, I would say. So I, I was also wondering, what are your opinions on, on, on this? So let me clarify something for anybody who might be listening right now. I'm 60 years old, Grasshopper. 46. Tom. 37. And Jibati. 26. Okay, so as younger people in a, what, what did you call it earlier, Jibati, a post-truth world, a post-fact world? I've seen that. You yeah, post-factual world. Post-factual world. That's also the new word in the Oxford Dictionary for uh, this year. This year. So this reminds me very much of how we've often described how the Democratic Party in the United States deals with what are, you know, the challenges of people who don't play fair. It's been likened to showing up for a gunfight with a knife. How do we deal with this new world? And, it, and, and as young people, you're going to bear a lot bigger burden or bigger challenge than I am at, as a 60-year-old. Are there strategies? Has anybody found any strategies? And what, what can we do to, to prompt more research and, and more strategizing around how do you deal with irrationality? How do you fight the falsehoods? How do you, how do you prevail somehow in situations where you're dealing with that? I think psychologically, people are primed already inherently to see what they want to see. So that's already one problem that exists in communication where we're so people already have a very hard time. Even then, you then add into the pudding social media that also provides you with what you already agree with based on the algorithm 
It shows you advertisements as well as only people who you're friends with who also hold the same beliefs, who are very likely to post the links to the news outlets also that you'd be most likely to also click on. It's also getting away from us consuming information that is not profit-based. It is so heavily tied communication as well as consuming information to the same for-profit corporate models that are attached to a whole multitude of other global sectors that we are also fighting another uphill battle when you add into mentioned psychology, then in addition to the social media and then the TV media also that is also fighting hard for those advertising dollars as well. You know what, what comes into my mind? is that every time here in the Netherlands, for, if you criticize populists, then you're put away like, oh, you're, you're just a doom thinker. But, you know, actually, under normal conditions, you could say like, okay, just go ahead, just prove otherwise, you know? If you can do a better job than the, the establishment, go ahead. But climate change is a different story because we don't have the luxury to pursue, just go on as business as usual. And referring to what you mentioned is that I like the idea of people have to realize that politicians, they convey a message, but they are also embedded, you know, in different contexts. So there are immense uh, interests, whether it be uh, commercially, you know, just name it. But I think it's, it's, it's important to take into account that people are seeing things for a reason, right? But somehow, I, at the same time, I think if you would like to address the challenges of climate change, you also need to take these climate deniers seriously, their concerns as well. Because at the same time, we do not have the luxury to ignore them or just to falsify them as like, okay, you're just a bunch of clowns. It's actually, if you, the new way of producing facts could be in a more collaborative way of producing new knowledge. If you look at the European systems of research funding, they set up a new program, which is called the Horizon 2020 20 program which allocates research funds to universities etc etc but one of the key element the key pillar of this funding system is that it strives for collaborative ways of developing new knowledge so you may overcome the critique of the degree of legitimacy of scientific knowledge for example isn't that what COP 21 and COP 22 was supposed to be I mean again all collective scientific fact-finding as well, yes. So, but then we're still left using some of the tools we know how to use. So suppose we have a big community meeting and we invite people. And I guess it's, you know, the only tool we know how to use very well is some sort of a public discourse system. Everybody gets to speak their minds and then somehow you try to synthesize it and you try to show them the facts as best you can in ways that they will say, yes, I've, I see that on the screen right there. I've seen that in my life. That's what it looks like over there. You know, there are certain things like that people will accept. I've seen the change in my landscape, for example. I mean, for us, coastal land loss, it's very, 
in your face. Is that is that just the best tool we have? Is is public discourse and and more of a collective way? If we can break people out of their living rooms, away from their idiot boxes and 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 video games and and social media. That's another discussion altogether with technology. Is there a way? Because it's a back to being social. People are 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 not happy. They're isolated. They're not healthy. There's so many issues that are. Is it that same way in Europe where the people in the cities? don't understand the people in the country and the people yes. in the country feel like their lives yes. have just been lost and that the people in the cities don't care about them. That's two the big, hours is not going to do it. That's the big rift here in America is between rural and urban. I think that's the huge difference between the U.S. and continental Europe. I think traditionally social inequality has been larger in the U.S. rather than in Europe. Wow. Hasn't been always like that. I have to admit that. I think that the fact is is that we, it's, it's a trend because even in a small country like the Netherlands, as you might know, we have four large cities, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, which, which uh, includes the fourth largest, not even the fourth, but maybe the fifth largest harbor in the world. They all form, they all clustered as, as a big city. But if you live outside, be, beyond the, these cities, then you wouldn't profit from economic prosperity. And what, what is interesting, if you look at the development of agriculture in relation to economic development, is that gradually people moved away from rural areas to the cities because there was the industry, employment was, was sufficient. Even though we are living in a dependent on a, a virtual economy as well, still you need to produce real goods, you know. And I think there's an imbalance right now, and it's starting to get worse, perhaps not in the, in the Netherlands, but there are other parts in Europe where these two things are not going astray, I would say. So ultimately, we still arrive at the social injustice, the social inequities that exacerbate the challenges we're facing. And I guess what we're seeing now are the symptoms of a certain type of neglect and failure to appreciate and recognize and address effectively a lot of these social inequities. Yes. And I think many of us have mistakenly perceived social inequity as strictly being a situation of poverty and a type of poverty that if you just open a door or provide a resource, those people become happier. And I think there are a lot of unhappy people who aren't necessarily in poverty, but they're intensely unhappy. And they got together this time. They, they actually had a candidate this time. Even though the candidate is a false, false god, he's, he's not so really what they think he is. But enough of these people practiced, did their civic duty and voted, uh, even though they hate the system and distrust the system. And they weren't voted voting against climate change, though. They were voting against the system. Uh, the system. They voted to break the system or right. to change it somehow. They're hoping that it went well, but those of us who know how this is playing out know it's unlikely to go well based on the philosophical underpinnings of the very loose and fractious team of people that are attempting to come together which we've seen this in the past when all these agendas clash. There's this overarching umbrella of conservatism that they fall under, but under that umbrella, they fight like cats and dogs, So, which doesn't help anybody in the long run. We don't know what's going to change first, but we know that the chaotic nature of, of the way these people tend to work together makes it hard for us to be able to predict what the future holds. The recently passed election was inequity and unfairness. Uh, 
whether that's true or not can be debated for days. But yeah, the the persons and the slices of the country that necessarily weren't even struggling as much as, say, other narratives, post-election narratives have been pushing, I think that's the sentiment that ties together people of multiple classes who uh, united and voted for this anti-establishment candidate. I think the the symbols that the people who voted for the president-elect, whether they were poor, middle class, or upper middle class, the united elements that they saw in this, when they wanted to rail against the establishment, those values were inequity, as well as just unfairness, as being the common themes that they distrusted from what they were seeing, you know, perceived as the Washington, being in the Washington bubble or the Washington, you know, establishment. But actually what you're saying is that we are in the middle of two uh, sentiments that are clashing all the time. You know, it's one, one sentiment is of related to fear. People like Trump, they would like to rule based on fear. But I would say when you talk about a strategy to overcome this fairness, and it could be bared by any one of us, right? Because I know nobody that doesn't have their concerns about the future, right? So why not focusing on hope, hope for a brighter future? Let's be positive. Because if I look at the social media, I'm referring all the time to our national pride, the, the populist Geert Wilders, uh, who is a climate denier. But it's all so, so negative, you know? People, they are not willing to listen to others. And when they do so, they always pointing to each other like it's your fault. Again, what I, what I said at the beginning is that we don't have the luxury to do nothing. We already approached the tipping point, the point of no return when it comes to climate change. And even the IPCC's uh, climate projections are quite conservative. So we really need to act now. But the worst way to, to proceed is just also articulating the need to act based on fear. I think that that's the wrong way. But we need to offer people an alternative, some prospect for a brighter future. And I think if, if you uh, manage to do that, people have the feeling that they can really change their situation, even at the household level, perhaps, or even we were talking at the beginning about, you know, we're living in a post-truth era. And when you promote hope for a brighter future, it would be nice if you can back your claims with, with facts, of course. But maybe we said it a couple of times, if facts really don't matter at all, it comes to the message, you know, the way you can convey your message. But I think it's also the way you convey messages would also motivate people, mo mobilizes people, because they think we are really able to, to change our situation. What you can see, and that is quite interesting, also referring to the uh, financial crisis. So if you, if you might know, in Europe, Spain and Portugal and Ireland, they face serious problems. But what's interesting is that you could see in the rural areas, they invented a new informal economy. So that emphasizes that people can change 
things at the grassroots level. So why not with regard to climate change? At least uh, the ability to improve the individual or the collective ability to adapt to the, the impacts of climate change. Do you think, as Steve was referring to earlier, when people see you know, the coast changing rapidly, that people have to see climate change firsthand for them to not necessarily even call it climate change, but see that something's changing before there's actually a collective mass who would be willing to say now is the time then to take that rapid action. However, I worry if it takes that complete disruption or the very traumatic natural event for that to occur, most likely it will be too late for us to prevent or to even adapt adequately if everyone needs to see it firsthand. Yeah, and and you're, you're quite right. I fully agree with you. And that's why there's an even bigger need to learn from each other because there are many examples in the world which could actually convey this message, the urge to, to, to act. Small <laughs> island states and really other areas. Bangladesh, for example. It has a rich history of floodings like New Orleans. Yeah, but I, I do agree that it's problematic to mobilize people because they have to face the problems. They have to see the problems first before they act. I think one of the bigger challenges we have when you talk about mobilizing people is that I don't think people realize how much personal power they have. And one of the issues that we've been personally doing and seeing the difference in it is uh, one of the fastest and quickest things you can do to change your future and the world's future. It, it involves your knife and your fork. And the, the spread of the American diet has been such a huge factor in impacting planetary health and human health. Yet it's, a, it's the kind of argument that it's very personal and people don't like being told what to eat, what to do. I, I just think Finding a way to make this personal, though, finding a way to make that journey personal is one of our biggest challenges, but I think it's something we have to really focus on. It's not always about the big companies, fossil fuel companies and things like that. It's really about every single person. Which it comes back to a social discussion and how we need to collaboratively work together on this urgent issue. I'd like to pause on this conversation and say that this is a conversation we're going to have to move forward on together. And I would like to invite Tom, can we continue this? And we'll talk about additional drivers and solutions and opportunities to adapt. And with that, I am Grasshopper Mendoza. Uh, I'm Steve Piku. I'm Tom von Ford. I'm Chabade Sandiford. And we are Adaptation Strategies. Until yes. the next time.